And then Ryan's called that Friday and he said, okay, don't say anything, just listen. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. I said, Ryan, I don't even know what the United Nations does. I just know everybody hates it. <laughs> hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special, and I am super excited to get to our guest today, my spirit animal, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. We'll start that interview in just a second. But first, it is spring, the time of year when seeds grow into flowers, when you grow up financially, at least. Your family needs protection if something happens to you. That means you need life insurance. Thankfully, Policy Genius makes it easy to get that financial security without the growing pains. Policy Genius is the easy way to buy life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. No commissions, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind, no strings attached. And Policy Genius doesn't just simplify life insurance. They also make it easy to compare and buy home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So the next time you stop to smell the roses, pull out your phone and head over to policygenius.com. Policy Genius, spring is here. Kick it off by nipping life insurance in the bud. Be a responsible human. Make sure that if something should happen to you, your family is not left bereft and you are not buried in a pauper's grave. Instead, go over to Policy Genius right now and get the best life insurance policy money can buy. Policygenius.com. Be a good, solid adult. Policygenius.com. Go check it out right now. Ambassador Haley, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. No, this is fun. It's great to be here. So let's start with this. What have you been doing since you left the Trump administration? Oh, I have enjoyed being a private citizen. I really have. I think that people don't realize that when you're in the UN, you really are only talking with Russia and China and talking about issues. You don't really talk to normal people because you can't trust talking to normal people. You, you have to keep everything close to the chest and you have to, um, you know, focus on that. So it's nice to be out talking to real people again and getting out there talking about the things I care about. Um, so doing that and then in the process of writing a book, that book will come out in the fall. And that's going to be, it's really therapeutic because that's, you know, me and during my time as governor, it's the transition into the Trump administration, it's the UN, what it was like, the negotiations. So it'll be, it's a lot of fun to write. I'm enjoying that. And then we started a policy platform because at the end of the day, I'm still a policy girl and that's what I love. And so we started Stand for America and it lets me talk about all kinds of issues, domestic policy, foreign policy. We're really trying to develop a grassroots conservative group that one, follows what I'm doing, but two, talks about all the good that's out there and all the dangers that we need to be careful of. So between all of those things, life is good. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you about your political future in a while because I'd be remiss if I didn't. But I want to start from the beginning. For folks who don't know your history, who may have first saw you just yeah. at the UN raising your hand sassily to, <laughs> yeah. to evil countries, uh, how did you get into politics in the first place? What's sort of your backstory? Well, you know, first I was born in a small rural town in South Carolina. Uh, we were the only Indian family. We weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. My father wears a turban. My mom at the time wore a sari. No one knew who we were, what we were, or why we were there. And so growing up like that, I was always different. I was always an other. And I remember coming home after being bullied, and my mom would always say, your job is not to show how you're different. Your job is to show how you're similar. And it's interesting because going through life, I've treated everything like that. So the same thing that happened as a five-year-old on the playground is the same thing I did when I was 
a governor. It's what I did as an ambassador is when you have challenges, it's a lot easier if you will go through all the things you agree on first and then go to the challenge because it puts everybody's guard down. It all of a sudden lets them relate to you a little bit more. And so those kinds of things really impacted everything I did. I started doing the books for my parents' business when I was 13. I did not know that wasn't normal until I got to college. Now I know it's child labor, um, <laughs> and I tell them that all the time. But it was there that I learned the value of a dollar. You know, when times were tough in our small business, I knew that we had to hunker down, we got creative, we got lean, and we got smart. And then when times were good, we never celebrated because we knew it wouldn't last forever. And I carried that whole mindset to my love of numbers. And that's um, when I went to Clemson, go Tigers, and graduated with a degree in accounting. Went to corporate America and um, worked there for a bit. And then I came back home to the family business. And it was there that, again, my mom heard me saying how hard it was to make a dollar and how easy it was for government to take it. And my mom said, quit complaining about it, do something about it. I did not know you weren't supposed to run against a 30-year incumbent in a primary. I really didn't. I was never that kid. I was never in college Republicans. I was That was those kids. That wasn't me. I didn't have any political interest whatsoever. But what I did know is that there were way too many lawyers in the state house and they needed one good accountant. <laughs> and so we campaigned once I, it was a 30-year incumbent. So once I realized what I got myself into, the only option was to win. And so my husband drove the car, my two little ones were in the back seat, and I went door to door and just told everyone that, look, I respected the 30-year incumbent, but I just wanted to do something different and was elected. And that was kind of the start of the political career. How did your family react when you said that you're running for office, your husband, your kids? How, how did they react to that? Because it's a difficult well, life, obviously. My kids were little. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were three and six at the time. So they didn't really know. They would cheer on every time they'd see like a four by eight billboard. They'd be like, mom, and they'd cheer me <laughs> on. They were my only cheering committee because no one knew who I was. So um, Michael has always been unbelievably supportive. He's never said no. He's never said, don't do it. He's always said, yeah, you can do this. You should go ahead. So, and of course my parents, you know, being immigrants, when you have immigrants immigrant parents. They're so patriotic. They're so grateful. And my parents, literally, there was not a day that went by where my brothers, my sister, and me didn't hear from my parents about how blessed we were to be in this country and how we had to remember that. And so that feeling, they always encouraged us to do anything. My husband was always supportive at everything. And then the kids, I think, just went along for the ride. So Eventually, you parlayed that into becoming governor of South Carolina. And how did that job differ from what you'd, you'd been doing? What, what surprised you about the job of being governor? Well, you know, being governor, with any job, it is what you make it, right? And so going into being governor, your number one job is to protect the people of your state and then to grow the state. And what I wanted to do was really change it. I really, South Carolinians, when I was campaigning, they were really hard on themselves. They were hard on our state. They weren't very complimentary of it. And all I kept thinking is, how am I going to sell companies on this state if the people themselves don't feel it? And so it was, I think, the business side of me and then, you know, just the wanting to sell um, and create jobs 
part of me that really put me into high gear. I knew that if you could give someone a job, you took care of a family. And I knew we had a lot of families at that time to take care of. I think our unemployment was 11% plus. And so I literally, as silly as it is, went to my assistant one morning and said, can you do me a favor? And she said, what? And I said, the next person that calls, and this was all the public calls that would come into the governor's office. I said, the next person that calls, answer the phone. It's a great day in South Carolina. How may I help you? And she said, really? And I said, just try it. I want to see how this works. And she did. And the person said, well, thank you. It is a great day. And it's amazing when you put people's guard down, they all of a sudden you know, there's just a kindness that comes out and there's more of an ability to bring the heat down a little bit. And so then I started saying it everywhere. It's a great day in South Carolina. I'd start every press conference, every speech, every ribbon cutting. And by the time we left, not only did we have a massive new Boeing plant, we were making more BMWs in that South Carolina plant than any place in the world. We had Volvo, we had Mercedes-Benz, five new international tire companies. We were um, number one in foreign exports, and they named us, literally named South Carolina the beast of the Southeast, So, which I love. <laughs> um, so bottom line is, when you're governor, you can really move the ball. You can change the culture. You can create the jobs. You can go after the budget and talk about the debt and really kind of do direct things that make that happen. Obviously, when challenges happen, you have to hunker down and, and protect the people of your state. But it was a job I loved. I mean, I was blessed to serve the state that raised me. I really was. So how did you deal with the, the slings and arrows that come along with, with being in <clears throat> politics? So I obviously get some of it. You've gotten a lot more of it because your career is longer and you're an elected official. Uh, I remember back when you were campaigning for governor and people were putting out scurrilous rumors about terrible. you on a near daily yeah. basis. How did you grow a, a, a skin thick enough to deal with that just as a human being? I'm very disciplined when it comes to that. Politics is the art of distraction, and you can't get distracted. And, you know, so when you get distracted, your opponents win. And so that would only make me hone in more. It would only make me more disciplined. And I just really, at the end of the day, think people are good, and they can see through things. And if you're genuine and good to them, they will be genuine and good back. They've proven that to me so many times through so many different scenarios. And so I think, look, it's hard not to take it personally. It happens, but you have to, because the second you start taking it personally, they win. And that just made me more determined that once I got to the position, I had to make it mean something. Because, I mean, there were a lot of bruises from it. You know, there are bruises from every campaign. There's bruises in public life. People are ruthless, you know, from what you wear to how you look to what you say to, you know, your family, everything else. And so you really have to make sure that if you're going to go into public life, it has to mean something. So as governor of South Carolina, I think the first time that a lot of people saw you on the national stage was the controversy mm-hmm. with regards to the removal of the Confederate battle flag mm-hmm. from the from the war monument that was outside the state capitol building, I believe. Uh, So maybe you can take us through your thinking on that. It it emerged, the whole controversy emerged in the aftermath of the horrible terrorist attack on the the historically black church in South Carolina. Maybe you can take us through your logic on that, because I know that that raised a lot of ire on both sides, and uh, and obviously you had to take a tough position. It was painful. It, It was absolutely painful. Here was, on a Wednesday night, 12 people did what a lot of people in South Carolina did. They went to Bible study. 
Mother Emanuel is one of the oldest African-American um, churches. It's a beautiful church. And people, typically families for generations go to that church. And But on that night, someone else showed up. And he didn't look like them. He didn't sound like them. He didn't act like them. But they didn't kick him out. They didn't call the police. They pulled up a chair and they prayed with him for an hour. And in that last prayer, when they bowed their heads, he started to shoot. Now, what made this so devastating was the goodness of these people. You had someone like Ethel Lance. She had lost her daughter two years prior to breast cancer and was just brokenhearted. But she would go around Mother Emanuel and clean, and she would sing a song that was, One day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I ask of you. Give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. You had the youngest victim, Tywanza Sanders. I mean, contagious smile, um, life in front of him. He had just graduated college. And on that night, he stood in front of his 93-year-old Aunt Susie and said, you don't have to do this. We mean no harm to you. Or you had someone like Cynthia Hurd, whose life motto was to be kinder than necessary. That's who these people were. These were people who lived their life every day just trying to be good. They took care of their families. They had jobs. They went to church. It was what every South Carolinian did. And the pain of that and the fact that it was in the most sacred of places, that was the part I couldn't get my heart around, was when you go to a place of worship, that's, you're with God. That's like the, that's your closest, closest feeling to God. And you feel the safest and you feel like you can let your guard down and you're your most vulnerable. And the idea that someone could do this in a church was just pure hate. And I remember going to my law enforcement director and I said, chief, please tell me he had a mental illness. I so wanted him to say that. And he said he didn't. So once we knew it was hate, I knew that I had to protect the state. But my bigger problem was I had to keep the national media out. They so wanted in on this. They wanted to define it. They wanted to talk about it in their terms. They wanted to talk about the solutions. And I literally had to just push them off and say, stop. We're going to have these funerals. We're going to give the respect to these families. And during that time, it was a presidential primary. So all the candidates wanted to weigh in on it. So I was on the phone with the candidates telling them to stay out. But the beautiful part was that next day, when the killer presented himself for the first time in front of the judge, those families, unscripted, unrehearsed, not having talked to each other, walked up, looked the killer in the eye, and forgave him. I mean, that kind of forgiveness through their pain, they forgave him and prayed for him. And there's so many lessons that can be learned through that. And the people of South Carolina, they didn't protest. They had vigils. They didn't have riots. They had hugs. And so from that standpoint, it was a healing time. The problem was that the killer did a manifesto. And the very picture on the manifesto 
was him standing there with the Confederate flag. So now the Confederate flag in South Carolina, by many, was viewed as heritage, service, um, family, history. There was a real traditional component to it. And then the others who know it as, you know, what people remember in slavery and all of those things. So you had this one group of people that saw it as a part of them, saw it as a part of their tradition. But literally, after I saw that image, and that image went all over the world, I knew that something had to be done. And so that next day, we announced that we were going to bring the flag down. It was a tough debate. Um, What made it hard is we had to have two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate. Um, And, you know, it was just a matter of, I think there was a little bit of, you know, just communication, a lot of prayer, and just believing in the people in South Carolina. And so, yes, it was a tough debate. What I made sure I communicated was a flag is a living, breathing representative symbol. A monument is very different. A monument represents a moment in history, a past moment in time. So I made it very clear to my state that, look, the flag needs to come down because I don't want a single child to look at that flag and feel pain or see the killer's face or any of that. But we're not going to start taking down monuments because those are monuments we learn from. That's how we make sure we never forget. So what we did on the monument side was an African-American museum went up. A monument to the Mother Emanuel in tribute went up. That's how that needs to be handled. If you take down a monument, you're not erasing history. You're just taking something down thinking you proved a point when you didn't. You just erased a lesson. So in a second, I want to ask you about a little more about the Confederate flag, and then I want to talk about the accusations of racism against the Republican Party more generally. But first, why are you not a Daily Wire subscriber? I know. You think that you're saving yourself money by not being a Daily Wire subscriber, but here's the reality. You're missing out on life because the fact is that for $9.99 a month, not only do you get access to Sunday specials like this one on Saturday, not only do you get access to the final question of the Sunday special they wouldn't otherwise get, you also get access to additional two hours of me every single day. You get my podcast, the full video of the podcast live, and then you get all of it on demand. And you get two additional hours of me every day that I do in the afternoon. So if you just can't get enough of me, then, I mean, you got to go check us out over at Daily Wire. Plus, we have a website that brings you the best in news. We have the Andrew Clavin Show and the Matt Wall Show. And God knows why you might want the Michael Moles Show for some odd reason. You get all that. And when you get the annual subscription, you also get one of these. Right? You get the Leftist Tears Hot or Cold Tumblr. And as you all know, this will infuse you with both brilliance as well as physical health. None of that is guaranteed. But I can guarantee you that your life will be better if you subscribe over at dailywire.com. So go check us out for $9.99 a month or $99 a year. Okay, so I want to ask you about the, the Confederate flag one moment more. So as you mentioned, for a lot of folks in the South who have Confederate flags on their truck, this does not represent slavery. It doesn't represent Jim Crow. It represents my dad fought under that flag in the Battle of the Bulge. This represents Southern heritage. And as you rightly point out, also for black folks, for many black folks in the United States, I'm sure a vast majority of black folks in the United States, they look at that flag and they rightly see a symbol that was flying uh, flying over the soldiers that were keeping people enslaved. So do you feel at all that, that in your decision and the decision of the legislature to take down the flag, there was danger in taking one side of that debate? in saying, okay, well, so a, an evil human being 
associated this with the worst parts of the heritage of this flag. And by taking it down, it was saying, well, that's correct, that this, that's really what the flag represents. And I, I remember a lot of the blowback around the time was sort of centered on that. Now, look, he defined it. If anybody wants to be angry, be angry at the killer. Because he's the one that gave the modern-day version of what he wanted the Confederate flag to be. Anytime you're in a trying situation, anytime things are hard, you have to take a side. You have to take a side. Because the worst thing you can do for the people you serve is take no side or play both sides. A decision had to be made. And this was one where I couldn't look my kids in the eye if I didn't do this. Every child that drove by, all the third graders that would come to the state house every year, I didn't want them to see that. Because I knew the history of the killer and what he did would last forever. I didn't do that. The killer did that. And so we, when we brought the Confederate flag down, we didn't do pomp and circumstance. It was very respectful. It was done, granted, thousands of people showed up. I knew it was bad when I looked over and the Weather Channel van was there. Like, everybody <laughs> had come in on South Carolina. But we had it respectfully taken down, respectfully held, respectfully transported to the museum so that it can be in its proper place. And so I was trying to be respectful to both sides, but I had to take a side. So when it comes to accusations of racism inside the Republican Party, a lot of folks have used the fact that there was debate over the flag. A lot of people sided against you in that debate as evidence that the Republican Party is more broadly racist. And that's also been a charge that's been leveraged just against Republicans for a very long time. Joe Biden, who obviously is now the Democratic frontrunner in 2012, suggesting that Mitt Romney wanted to put y'all back in chains with regard to to black folks, constant accusations that President Trump is racist. And we'll get to President Trump in a little while. What do you make of the general accusation that the Republican Party is either making room for racism or is embodying racism itself? Well, I mean, look, we all have a responsibility when it comes to racism. And, you know, I've felt it. I know other people have felt it. That kind of pain is a really deep-seated pain. It's one that really hurts you at your core because you can't change who you are. You can't change those facts. And you don't want to change those facts. So racism will always be there, unfortunately. But how we choose to respond to it is really important because mine was, one, give people the benefit of the doubt. People don't mean to be racist. Some are older. Some grew up in a different generation, and they think differently. If you look at my children, they don't see race at all. It's completely different. And so I do always try and take into account the generations and those that are dealing with it. But at the same time, respect for different races applies to everyone, Republicans and Democrats. When I was running for governor, I had a Republican, a white Republican that called me a raghead. I had a black Democrat say that I wasn't a minority. I was just a conservative with a tan. Racism comes from both sides. And so I think we have to be honest. And, you know, look, the Republican Party, you see a lot of white men. So I think that doesn't help the scenario. But look at the actions of the Republican Party. I wouldn't be there if I didn't believe in the fact that I am a conservative. I do think that government 
does not need to control all things. And we, we need to appreciate our freedoms. We need to see the opportunities. We need to allow them to grow. We need to let every person feel what it's like to be in America and not infringe on that. I've seen what happens in other countries. We are blessed to be in this country. And we have to remember to be grateful. And I, I think when it comes to the racism, I didn't just have to worry about what white pro-Confederate flag people cared about. I had to sit down and have breakfast with Jesse Jackson every other day to keep him at bay. I had to talk to Al Sharpton and say, do not bring that hate speech into South Carolina. It goes both ways. And so if we really are gonna deal with the issue of racism, you have to call it out for what it is to everyone. I mean, to me, racism was being at the UN and seeing what they were doing to Israel. You know, I called them out. And I think we should always call it out when it happens, but try and move past it. Try and do something that makes them think. It's harder, it takes longer, but that's how you change a culture. And so this brings us all the way up to 2016. So during the 2016 race, uh, you were vocally against President Trump in the, in the primaries, uh, and then you endorsed him for the general, I believe. Um, but maybe you can take us through your th thought process along the, the 2016 spectrum, because there's a lot of movement for a lot of folks uh, uh, along that line. I think people don't realize I knew President Trump for a few years. He actually um, endorsed me in my first governor's race. Um, I remember getting this great envelope, like had gold trim, the whole thing, <laughs> and he had sent a check. And so I called him. And then after that, we had met, you know, throughout the years, if I was in New York or, um, and we'd talk on the phone. So we were cordial. This was the fact that we had a lot of people on that stage, a lot of talent on that stage. And I was giddy at how many great candidates we had. And so trying to pick the one that fit was hard. But I actually didn't know Marco very well. Um, but once I met him, we had so much in common. Growing up, um, wanting to really deal with the racial side of how people see that. There were just a lot of things that we connected on. And so he felt like the right candidate for me. He was younger. I wanted somebody younger. I mean, there were a lot of different reasons. Having said that, once the president won the primary, I was with him. You know, that I knew we needed a Republican in the White House. And we had all felt eight years of what President Obama was. And we had all suffered from it. Businesses suffered. People suffered. You know, foreign policy suffered. And so, you know, once the president um, got in, I got the phone call from Ryan saying that, you know, he wants to talk to you. And I said, about what? And he said, Secretary of State. And I said, Ryan, I'm a governor. I can't be Secretary of State. And he said, well, he wants to meet with you. So the next day I went to New York, I met with him. And I just from the beginning said, I'm not your person. You know, I think that we're at a point in time in foreign policy where we don't need a learning curve. We need to make sure that we have the right person, but I will support and help in any way that I can to help you find someone. And then I went back to a job I loved. And then Ryan's called that Friday and he said, okay, don't say anything, just listen. U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. I said, Ryan, I don't even know what the United Nations does. I just know everybody hates it. <laughs> and he said, just think about it over the weekend. And that's when my husband, Michael, he was on the computer that night. He's like, Nikki, I think you'd be really good at this. And it was a tough time. Look, I had a, you know, I had a daughter in college. She was a freshman in college. 
Naylan, my son, was 15. And, you know, it's a time you don't want to move your kids. I take care of my parents. They both live with us. Um, Michael and I have taken care of them for eight years. They're both in their 80s. My mom has Parkinson's. And so, you know, it was just, I have a military combat um, veteran husband who, you know, is coming and going. So it just wasn't the right time to make a move. And then the president called on that Monday and he said, all right, Nick, are you going to do this? And I said, I just, things would have to be, you know, right to do this. And he said, like what? And I said, well, I've been a governor, so I don't want to go work for someone. I would want to work with you. This would need to be a cabinet position. He said, done. He said, what else? I said, well, I'm a policy girl. And I said, so I want to be in the room when policy is made, and I'd have to be on the National Security Council. He said, done. What else? That was the moment, right? That's (laughs) like, oh, no. And then (laughs) I said, well, I'm not going to be a wallflower talking head. I need to be able to say what I think. And he said, that's exactly why I want you to do this. And it took off from there. And he was true to his word every step of the way. So what is your, after having served at the UN, what's your overall view of the UN? So I have been vocally anti-UN for as long as I can possibly remember. I've recommended that the building be torn down and that President Trump build condos on top of it. You've served there. What, what is the, do you think there's a purpose to the UN? Do you think it's a useful organization? What should the U.S.'s involvement in the UN be? The president actually asked me a year in, He said, what do you think of the UN? Should we stay in? And I said, this is the thing. It's wasteful. It's bureaucratic. It's a lot of talk and not as much action. Um, There's resentment. Um, We're being taken advantage of. But we would not have gotten those three North Korean sanctions packages and had the international community all on the same page against North Korea without the UN. So I think the American people are going to decide. I don't know that I've decided yet. Um, but the UN has, a, has to really, we pushed some really big reforms. In the first year, we were able to cut $1.3 billion immediately. That was just low-hanging fruit. When people see the big UN building, they think ambassadors are in there. That's just staff. You have thousands of people that work in that building. And it's all because countries want their people in there. The staff has doubled in the last 10 years. That's how ridiculous it is. The reforms were happening. We did work with the Secretary General. It was starting, but it's got a long way to go. And the UN, more importantly, has to change with the times. They can't keep talking about old issues they've always wanted to talk about. They have to take on issues like Venezuela, which they didn't want to do. They have to take on those issues with Iran and call it out the way it is. In any way for them to continue to be relevant, they have to do what's uncomfortable to do. And I don't know if they're willing to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's been my main criticism of the UN is you look at the Human Rights Council and it's filled with human rights violators. You look at the Women's Rights Council, it's filled with women's rights violators. You, you, you look at the, the UN Security Council and you have countries that are you know, deeply, uh, have deep antipathy for, for the United States trying to dictate policy to the United States while we foot the bill. And I just wonder, wouldn't we better be better off working with the alliances that we've already forged, working with NATO, creating a new League of Democracies, doing something like that? And I think it may come to that because, I mean, when you look, yes, were we able to move the ball? We were, but it is what you make it. But for all the heat we took and the resentment and the part that bothered me, I always tried to show value to the citizens because they were paying for it. But the part that bothers me is we pay so much money China doesn't pay much because they're considered a developing country. 
They're not a developing country. We only have five vetoes, which can stop anything. It's the permanent members. It's um, the UK, France, us, China, and Russia. They can stop anything. The Russian veto was one of the hardest parts about my job. They pay less than 6%. We pay 22% of operating. Now it was 28. Now it's 25% of peacekeeping. That's an enormous amount. And they're getting that veto right for very little. So it's not fair. It's not a fair scenario. We made it very clear something was going to have to give. I still think we need to hold them to that standard. If they don't make the changes, we should strongly look at the fact, are we getting this? Now, Beijing would love to have it. Fine. If Beijing wants to have it, let them have it. If they're not going to start to really... I don't want us to give more than 25%. The UN shouldn't want us to give more than 25%. It's not healthy for any organization. So it has to change with the times. And right now, it's choosing to be archaic and stuck. Let's talk a little bit about your generalized view of foreign policy. So there's this hot debate on the right, particularly, that ranges from sort of an isolationist view on the right that we shouldn't be involved in any activity around the world. People, for example, saying that we should basically leave Maduro in power without even trying to exert influence because that's American imperialism and where has that worked before? And then there are folks who are extraordinarily interventionists who believe that we should be involved nearly everywhere. Where do you come down to that debate? How would you define what you think the ideal American role in the world would be? I define it now by what I saw with all the other countries at the UN. After Assad did the chemical weapons strike and the president said, we're going to enforce the red line, and he did the strikes against in Syria. The number of countries that came and spoke to me, texted me, or pulled me aside and said, it's so good to see the United States lead again, was overwhelming. Now, they're not going to say it publicly, but at the end of the day, they may resent us, they may not like us, but they see us as the moral authority. They do want a country to follow. And I think that the U.S. always needs to be a leader, but we need to be a leader in values. We need to be a leader in smart foreign policy. We need to be a leader in calling things out for what they are. And so values, if you look at who we kind of consider our threats right now, China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Syria, they don't agree with our values either. It doesn't work. So from that standpoint, I think we should always keep that in mind. The second idea is we shouldn't be quick to go to war. No Americans want to go to war. That should always be a last resort. And understand there is a middle ground. I mean, the reason we pushed for the North Korean sanctions, they were, I mean, the threat was very real, not just to the peninsula, to, to many countries. And the reason we did the sanctions was because every ounce of money that was going into North Korea, they weren't feeding their people. They were building their nuclear war chest. So through the sanctions, we cut off 90% of their trade, 30% of their oil, um, all of their exports, and we just starved it to the point that they came to the table. You know, H.R. McMaster at the um, NSC, he went and he had diplomats, other countries expel their diplomats or close their embassies. So they felt very isolated. I think pressure goes a long way and getting other countries with you goes a long way. So I, you know, I think people always say they're one way or the other. I think if you're going to be smart, you have to, one, keep your values in check, two, always be willing to exert pressure, but three, think about the long game. 
Where is it that you want to go? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And and go from there. So I, I think it's dangerous when you start to label foreign policy. President Obama and every president has the ability to decide what they want their foreign policy to be. He decided he just didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't want to be involved. He wanted us to, he wanted all other countries to like us, and he wanted to focus domestically. Well, the United States paid the price for that. You know, when when the Trump administration came in and when I came in, we had chemical weapons being used in Syria. We had massive protests in Venezuela. We had Iran who had just gotten literally a plane full of money. And instead of just being causing problems in their circle, they were now involved in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq. I mean, they had really put their tentacles out because we just gave them the money to do that. You know, all in the name of trying to work with them. We had North Korea that was threatening every day. I mean, we were in a mess. And so the best way to fix that is to have a strong voice. And my way of using it at the UN was I wanted every country to know what we were for and what we were against and that there were no gray lines. And it allowed other countries to follow. And while they may not like our decision, they like it when we make decisions, when we move. There's been a lot of talk about the Trump doctrine. Is there a Trump doctrine? It seems like because the administration has historically been pretty leaky, you get various characters who are, are complaining. The president obviously has gone through a couple of secretaries of state at this point. There's been some turnover. If you had to define what the Trump doctrine is on foreign policy, is there a way to define that down? I think it was, you know, being assertive, um, taking a stand, and following through. Those were the main things. What you have in the, in the administration is personalities. The personalities aren't necessarily the decisions he makes. And I think we've seen that play out. You know, obviously, there were a lot of personalities on the NSC that didn't want him to move the embassy to Jerusalem. He did anyway. You know, there were um, a few people who didn't want him to do the strikes in Syria. He did it anyway. So while he listens to all of those, I think he's more about being assertive and making sure that countries understand that when you say something, don't test us because we'll follow through with it. So you served in the administration, obviously. How would you rate President Trump's presidency on a scale of one to 10? I think it depends. So foreign policy, I think he's been quite strong. And I think that our standing in the world, um, the respect has come up, the, the strength that we've shown and the ability to follow through is strong. Domestically, um, I think there have been some really big wins. The tax cuts were huge. It's the first time Americans felt some hope. There was some extra cash in their pocket. I saw with the people that worked in our office and those government employees, so many of them work paycheck to paycheck. To suddenly see not just a little bump, but a big bump in their paycheck was huge. Um, I think the idea that the foreign aid side, which was something that I felt very strongly about is that we, yes, we are a generous country. We're always going to care about humanitarian issues. We're always going to deliver on that. But we are no longer going to give countries money in the name of them liking us. Um, you know, I think from the budget, I'm disappointed. I think that the debt is way too high. I think that we have to start looking at fiscal discipline. But, you know, you have your priorities and it falls down there. And unfortunately, at that point, I think that's a little bit down. But I, I think the president has really brought a voice that was needed. There's times in a country, and we're seeing this not just in the U.S., we're seeing it all over, where the people didn't feel heard. 
And he made them feel like the power of their voice mattered. And um, I still think, you know, obviously we have a long way to go on bureaucracy and obviously we have a long way to go on some other things. But the way the foreign policy is working, the domestic side, it's so politically toxic right now that I'm frustrated with both Republicans and Democrats. You know, at the end of the day, we have to get something done. And I think what bothered me the most was the shutdown. Congress knew, Republicans and Democrats knew, that if they didn't get it right, government was going to shut down. They have one job, one job. And when they shut down government, I was so angry because they left with their paychecks. They were getting paid. These public servants that work in government, them going paycheck to paycheck, they thought it was okay to say, oh, you'll get it when government opens back up, which was like six, eight weeks later. How are they going to pay rent? You want to talk about payday loans? You want to talk? That's what leads into that. So the thought of that average worker went right out the window. When I was governor, I would always put both sides in the room and say, we're not leaving until we figure this out. Congress never should have left. They never should have gotten paid when government was shut down. And they should have thought more about the American people. And I think that the people need to remind them they have a job to do. Immigration, if that's such a big issue, do something about it. Get in a room and do something. Why are we not debating that right now? USMCA, the trade deal? I mean, Mexico and Canada aren't going to pass it until they see the U.S. pass it. Why aren't we voting on that? There's a lot of things that just aren't moving that need to be done. All the ambassadors that we don't have out around the world, what does that say about the United States? They don't care that Republicans and Democrats can't get it right, but our standing in those countries is weakened. So there's just, I think, I wish they all would work together more in the name of the American people and not be so politically toxic. And I think we've gotten to a place where it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's it's so bad that when you have a good piece of legislation that someone puts down, everybody wants to know whose it is first before they decide if they like it. That's when you know you've hit rock bottom. Well, I mean, given democratic intransigence, what options do you think President Trump has? I mean, especially on immigration, for example, which he has made a staple of his campaign in 2016 and moving forward into 2020. What recommendations would you give to the president, given that the Democrats won't even give him the funding necessary to provide beds for the people who are crossing the border illegally? I think the president's making a strong argument that is real. Remember, his number one job is to protect the people of this country. And my parents came here legally. They put in the time. They put in the price. They they had to work to get here. They are offended by anyone that comes here illegally. And that's the thing is, if you talk to legal immigrants, they sacrifice to be here for the benefits of being here. If you don't follow the rules to get here, why would you follow the laws when you're here? And that's the part that they have to understand. America, immigrants are the fabric of America. It's what makes us great. It's, we need as many immigrants as we can. We need the skills. We need the talent. We need the culture. We need all of that. But we're a country of laws. And the second you give up being a country of laws, you've lost everything this country was founded on. And so if you don't like something that's happening, fix it. We can't have 100,000 people last month on the U.S.-Mexico border and then sit there and say, do we let them go? Do we not let them go? Where do we keep? I mean, it's a debate that really needs to stop. 
All we're talking about is processes. All we're talking about is the fact that we need to know who's here, where they're from, and have we done the background check. And I think when it comes to asylum seekers, and this is a good example from South Carolina. In South Carolina, we we were part of a federal refugee program, like many states in the country. And that's where you take the persecuted. That's where you take those that are in fear of their life in other countries. But my husband was deployed to Afghanistan for a year. His unit, when they came home, the first thing they cared about were those two interpreters that kept them safe all year. And they knew that if they stayed, they would die. That refugee program allowed them to go through the process, come here. They're now both working, have their families contributing back. It can work. If you remember, all this debate started with the Syrian refugees a few years ago. And I remember as governor calling the FBI director, then James Comey, and saying, tell me, how are the Syrian refugees any different than what we have here? He said, we literally have no information on them. He said, I have no background. I have no family. I have no history, nothing. At that point, I said, South Carolina is not going to participate in this because you can't allow people to come in that you don't know anything about them. And so that's what this is, is asylum seekers. It's not that we don't feel for them. It's not that we don't hurt for them. I can actually tell you the U.S. combined with the U.N., the U.S.-led with the UN, we had teams along the caravan borders to give health care and safety because we were worried about the lives of those people. We were worried about trafficking. We were worried about many of them were getting sick. So, you know, it's not that we don't care. It's the fact that we have to protect American citizens first and then go through the processes of doing that. For anyone that doesn't want the immigration rules to come into play, how else do we protect the country? That's our job. That's, that's what we have to do. And so literally, this is one of those Congress get in a room, figure it out. I think the president's done all he could possibly do. He's pointed out the facts. He's said it's a crisis. He's literally given it to them. And we need Republicans and Democrats to say, time to get to work. I mean, at some point, the president can only do so much. This is a congressional thing. And I think that we have to put a lot of weight on that and put the pressure on them. He's, he can talk about it. He can bring the issues up. He can do what few executive orders he can do. But at the end of the day, the American people have to put the pressure on Congress to say, this is a priority for us. It may not be for you, but it is for us. All right. So I want to ask you about the increasing radicalism that seems to be cropping up in the Democratic Party, the intersectionality-driven philosophy of the Democratic Party, making room for anti-Semitism, in my opinion, the, the Democratic Party going out of its way not to condemn the overt anti-Semitism of both Rashida Tlaib as well as Ilhan Omar, people rallying around Ilhan Omar and suggesting that she's somehow a victim when people quote her. What do you make of, of the Democratic Party's move toward, toward the radical left? And do you see them moving toward moderation anytime soon? Well, I think first we have to say something very clear. Anti-Semites are racists, right? And so when you see anti-Semitism, that's a racial problem. Now, again, look at the parties. If it was any other group, you would be incredibly upset. So it's a very odd thing for me to see that the Democrats are not stepping up on this. You know, when they passed, when Congress passed that resolution that was nothing, 
They literally didn't name Omar. They didn't do anything. It was the most watered-down, weak uh, piece of legislation I had seen. Why even do it? The thing is, call people out. You've got a serious problem when people are saying things that are that hurtful and that divisive. And just to let you know, the killer of the Charleston shooting, it all started with the Trayvon Martin case. That's when it got in his head. That's when he started to hear things. That's when he started to hear the back and forth. And then he went online and he did that. Words matter. Words matter. And so I think from that standpoint, there is no place in our country for any racist language whatsoever. Now, at the same time, we have to be responsible with that, right? You have to make sure that you're in check and you're not being overly sensitive. But I think we have to be careful with that. From the the extremism that we're seeing, it's really fascinating because if you look at the Republican primary last time, we had a lot of talent on that stage. And what happened? The media didn't pick up your average Joes. They went further and further to the right. And it was all about the surprising sound bites. It was all about the most radical things that were said. Now you flip it. We've got a Democratic primary, what they perceive as a lot of talent on their stage, and it's going further and further to the left. You've got Green New Deal. You've got anti-Semitism. You've got um, socialism. You've got all of these things. And what's the media talking about? The furthest to the left. You have 104 new congressional members. They only talk about three. So the media has now taken on the sound bites. The Democrats have really taken on sound bites. Okay, if socialism works, they throw out how happy everybody would be. But no one asked the extra question. Well, why is Venezuela like that? Well, what happens? My friend had to get surgery, a knee surgery in Canada. She ended up coming to Washington State to get it done because she would have to wait eight months. Well, she could afford to do that. What does that say for those people that can't afford it? Is socialism good for them? And so I think that, you know, when Bernie says, you know, healthcare for all, and, and, and Elizabeth is saying, oh, free college tuition for all, it's dangerous because you're talking in sound bites and you're not actually saying, oh, but do you know what debt we're going to put on the country? Do you know what we're going to have to sacrifice for that? I mean, there's no long thought coming out of this Democratic primary so far. They have to explain the solution, not the soundbite. And that's happening. But I think there's something that's even worse. And that is that what we've seen through these last couple of years is the political toxicity has reached a new level. And we've seen where parties are referring to the others as evil. And the hate and the rhetoric has gone up. That bothers me because I've seen evil. I've been to the Democratic Republic of Congo where they use rape as a form of war. I've been to South Sudan and sat with the women who have told stories about the military coming in, grabbing their babies from their arms and throwing them in fires. I've been to Venezuela on the Simon Boulevard Bridge where those families are walking hours in the sun holding their babies for the one meal they may get that day. The average Venezuelan adult has lost 24 pounds. I've seen the pictures of kids who have died from chemical weapons in Syria. That's evil. 
we're just having differing opinions. So at some point, the hate level has to come down and a serious debate needs to happen. There's a lot of issues we need to debate, whether it's immigration, whether it's socialism, whether it's the you know, Green New Deal, whether it's term limits that I strongly believe in. We need to have those debates, but we don't need to hate each other through the process. And so, and I think that's actually keeping us from being productive. While everybody's busy hating each other, other countries are succeeding. Other countries are doing really well. And they're all looking at us wondering what's going on. So I think we have to get our country in check. I think we have forgotten to be grateful. I mean, on our worst day, we are blessed to be in America. And it won't always stay that way. We have a responsibility to keep it that way. And political infighting or part partisan fighting isn't going to fix it. It's going to stall any progress from going forward. When we talk about the divisiveness inside the Democratic Party, the increasing radicalism of the Democratic Party, uh, the intersectionality, the, the support for folks like Ilhan Omar, for whom folks are continuing to raise money, the, the immediate response from the media when any of this is mentioned is, of course, President Trump. The suggestion is that his language uh, is, is not in keeping with sort of the, the tenor and tone that, that you're using. And Joe Biden launched his campaign for the presidency this year with a reference to Charlottesville, which you know, I thought was a real low point for the president. How, what did you make of, of Charlottesville? What do you make of President Trump's impact on the rhetorical divides and, and racial divides in the country? When Charlottesville was happening, I picked up the phone and called the president. And I had a private conversation about what I thought he was saying, what I thought it meant, and my opinion on that. And so I'm going to keep, I think those private conversations need to stay private. Everyone has a responsibility with their language and their tone, including the president. And so I think that when you've seen tragedies in places of worship, like we are continuing to see, I think when you're seeing school shootings, I think when you, these are the things that can happen if you don't watch your tone. People get hurt, people die. And so there is a responsibility anytime you are in public office, anytime that you're a public person, there is a responsibility in what you say and how you say it, and to make sure that it can't be perceived by anything. I saw what that killer saw in the Trayvon Martin case, and he kept hearing the rhetoric from both sides, and it made him angry. The things he said to them in that church that day were all about what he had heard that black people did and why they were harmful to white people. These things matter. And look, I mean, is there a quick fix to say tomorrow we're all going to be better? No. Are we always going to have division? Yes. But at some point, you have to look in the mirror and say, what am I doing about it? How do we draw that line, though? I mean, in terms of using harsh language, uh, in, where do you draw the line between robust political debate and quote-unquote incitement? Because you've seen that happen also, as people suggest that incitement is happening simply because somebody disagrees on an issue. So Omar has suggested that President Trump quoting her, for example, is incitement of violence against her. How do we, how do we draw that line? So the way I've always looked at it, and I think this is always, you know, every person is their own judge, is I believe you always speak truth, give the facts, give your opinion, but don't ever let it be personal. I mean, that's the part. When you start to 
And you can always tell these conversations when they start to get personal. Um, that's when you have to stop. And if you say something that is offensive, doesn't mean you should apologize. You know, doesn't mean, because if you meant it and you feel it, but understand that when you say something, some will take it that way and decide whether you're comfortable with that. The problem with Omar that I have is where is the Democratic Party? Like at what point, yes, we can be offended by what she says. It is very telling how silent they are about what she says. That's the part that should bother everyone in this country. Because if race matters that much, if anti-Semitism and violence and what can happen matters that much, why aren't we calling them out? Where are they saying things? Why is everyone giving them a pass? And, you know, again, so I would call them out on that, but I don't think you have to talk about someone's hair or the way they look or, you know, call them evil or anything like that. I think that's when you're getting too far is be professional about it, be passionate about it, have fun with it, but don't lose yourself in that and don't cut someone else without, everybody has a family and everybody has their own challenges and everybody has their own strengths and their own flaws. Remember, these are real people, but you can disagree. And I think the debate should always be healthy and passionate. I just think it should never get personal. So a lot of folks are looking forward to 2024 and thinking of you as a prospective candidate. Do you have any interest in running for the presidency come 2024? Uh, what are you looking at? I have been blessed to serve the state that raised me and more blessed to serve the country I love so much. I am too young to stop fighting. I know that. Um, it is the reason why um, I have started Stand for America. So go to www.standforamerica.com. And, uh, and follow us, is to have that voice and be that person that continues to, to talk about where I think we're going right and where I think we're going wrong as a country. Um, but my husband and I have never talked about anything in public office going further. So I say that to you in that if it was something we were thinking about, we would have had that conversation. It's not anything that we've thought about. I really am enjoying just coming down a notch, the stress level coming down, um, spending time with Rena and Naylan and Michael and, and kind of doing things we hadn't done before. And um, I, I just want to do that. But I, it's in my blood. I don't know how not to say something when I see something wrong. I don't know how not to care about moving the ball in this country. I just have to see where that takes me. Well, looking at the radical polarization in the country, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where the country is headed at this point? I'm optimistic because I know the capabilities of this country. I'm optimistic because I know the goodness of people. It's hard to see the light right now, but I know the people are good. I know the values. I know everything about where we want to go as a country is good. It's a culture that we've taken on that's bad. And so we just have to go back to changing that culture. And again, it's going to take um, leaders who see culture as important. It's going to take people who believe values matter and that they have to stay true to those. And I think that it's going to take the American public not settling unless they get results. It's not about the talking. It's about getting things done. At the UN, it was very much about... I don't want to just read a speech. I want to get something done. And 
we owe that to the American people if we're going to be in office. And I think that we need to remind everyone in Congress that we don't care about what your soundbite is. We don't care about the great, you know, pushback that you gave. What did you do to get it done? And that's the question we should be asking. So I have to ask you to tell the story of the famous picture of you holding your hands up in the middle of the UN. People have only seen the picture. They may not know the backstory. So what exactly happened to precede that photo? You're talking about the veto? Yeah, the vote? veto, the veto vote. I mean, look, it was it was really offensive to me that here you had the international community and the Security Council telling us that we didn't have the right to move our embassy to the capital of the country, where we put all of our embassies around the world, we always put them in the capital. So to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was just stating a fact. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. We were doing what we've done in every other country, and we were very honest about it. And for them to go and tell a sovereign country what they can and can't do, I had my backup. I was I was angry, and I think— um, but that was the proudest moment I had. Doing that veto was telling the world, you can try this all you want, but we are the United States. We're going to continue to do what we want to do, how we want to do it, and this is right to us. And so it was an adamant vote, I think, is what people saw in that picture. I was just very I wanted to make sure that they knew how strongly I felt about it and how strongly the American people felt about it. So in a second, I don't know your daughter, but I do know your son, Naylan. I'm going to ask you to humiliate him by giving child-rearing tips in just a second. And if you want to hear Nikki Haley's answer about how to raise your kids, you have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, <laughs> go to dailywire.com, click subscribe. You can hear the end of our conversation there. Ambassador Haley, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you. And finally, I'm in the room with my spirit animal, guys, so you can see we're not in fact, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Thank you. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Mathis Glover. Edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. 'll we'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure talk believes in American values and that free should mean you know like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let PureTalk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.